Hello, I'm Liz Jones. If you read my diary in the Mail on Sundays You magazine, then you'll know me and my life pretty well. But if you've always wanted to know more, this is the place for you. Welcome to Liz Jones's Diary, the podcast. I'll be taking you behind the scenes of this week's column before digging back into the archives to find some of the most shocking and hilarious stories from the last 20 years. I'll be doing all this with the help of my assistant, friend and confidant, Nick. Hello. Good morning, Liz Jones, and how are you? Well, I watched The Father last night on iTunes. Ah, what did you think? Um, It's the Oscar-winning film Anthony Hopkins plays the father Olivia Coleman is her daughter is his daughter I actually really enjoyed the flat they lived in because it was just this gorgeous London mansion flat because you know I love films according yeah, yeah. to the interiors I like it to have nice houses it's all about the interior and they portray his dementia so really the whole film is from his point of view they pr- portray his dementia from inside his head so therefore you see his confusion because he gets people muddled up. Yeah. And they're played by different actresses. So that was very clever. But the whole thing just made me incredibly upset and depressed. I also felt, because of this beautiful, beautiful flat and he had these beautiful ironed pyjamas and everything, I also felt... There wasn't the mess and the paraphernalia of an older person, much older person who has dementia and doesn't know what they're doing. And me, being a very fussy pots person, because I grew up one of seven children, everything was chaos, all my mum did was housework, so I really like my little corner of the world to be completely pristine and no one to touch anything, because I grew up... And it was just, I shared a bedroom with two other girls. I didn't even have my own bedroom. No. I can't imagine that, actually. As an only child, I can't imagine what that was like. Awful. Yeah. Awful. So I'm a very pristine person. So when my mum, after she lost my dad, she really went downhill. And I think she lived about 10 years after he died. The thing that upset me, it's a horrible thing to say, and it wasn't in this film, the thing that upset me the most really about my mum was her home being invaded so there was all this equipment and funny smells and wipes everywhere and tablets and people coming in and people going out and I just couldn't stand that invasion of her home really and my mum was so house proud but for 10 years she never went downstairs no. She couldn't get downstairs. So she was upstairs for 10 years, so she never knew what was happening in the kitchen. And because she was disabled, that made her mind disintegrate because she wasn't doing anything. Yeah, yeah. So she couldn't even listen to the radio, she couldn't watch telly, she couldn't read. So in a way, it was a slightly glamorous look at dementia, although it was really upsetting, and the final scene was really upsetting where he's sobbing, and I know my mum would sob sometimes. Um, but there was no sort of light and shade in it because there are funny things that happen as well when your mum is in bed with dementia and you've got carers and everything and the carers were absolutely amazing amazing women but there were funny things that happened so my mum 
would be shouting in the middle of the night and the carer lived in eventually because she couldn't have people coming in out because she got quite frightened. And the carer would come running into her room and this was someone who was a new carer who'd taken over from um, Daria, who was an amazing woman from Latvia. And my mum was shouting and shouting, Robert, Robert, where, Robert, where are you, darling? Robert, Robert. Oh, and the carer sad. was going, there is no Robert. There is no Robert. You're right, there's no Robert and everything. So when I got there the next day, she said, oh, she was crying in the middle of the night for Robert. And I said, there is no Robert. I said, you know, that's the name of her husband. So oh. we were laughing because she was going, no, there is no Robert. And my mum must have been thinking, well, I'm not that daft. Oh, bless her. Oh, <laughs> oh, poor mum. But the messiness of it wasn't in the film. And I know that's a horrible thing to portray. And he was still walking around and he was still sitting at a table and eating quite normally. It's quite a different thing when they're in a bed. I mean, yeah. at one point, my mum had this sort of ski lift going across the room that carried her from the bed into a chair, but eventually yeah. she couldn't do that. But it's funny, as a child lying in the bed saying to my sister, what can I think about? My biggest worry was my mum dying Yeah, from when I was about five. I think that's quite common, isn't it? I think, I mean, I certainly, when I was a child, I remember sobbing in the night and not being able to sleep because I was so scared my mum would die. I, th I think I think a lot of children go through that. But it's that. funny, it's when awful. she'd been, her ending of her life was so awful and you see tears leaking out of her face, you wanted her to die. Yeah. That's the thing, isn't it? When, you know, She we, wanted to die. We, she wanted to yeah. go and live with my dad and she was a very spiritual person, my mum. And when she was still hobbling around, because she's always... I grew up, she was hobbling, she was always hobbling. She didn't have a car, she didn't have a driving licence. She said she came down into the hall not long after my dad died and he was standing in the hall in his uniform. Oh, oh, oh bless her. So she's quite spiritual, my mum. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing about that amazing organisation, isn't it? Dignity in dying. You know, we don't let animals suffer, but but our families and our friends, they get, you know, they, they should have the choice. They should have the choice. We should yeah, but she wasn't capable country. of saying, please kill me, no. because she didn't even know how to say... I want a cup of tea. No, And she no. was so polite, my mum. And the, I remember Daria saying that, you know, I really love your mum. She said, I really love your mum. She's so easy. She, all my mum learnt to say, because she didn't know how to say anything, was, thank you. Yeah. And I'm getting better. Oh. The only two things she knew how to say, oh, so she hung so. on to those. Yeah. And the care of Daria had been with my mum I would say well over five, six years. She wasn't with her family. She lived in the spare room. Um, so she'd lived 24 hours a day with my mum for years and years and years and years and years. The day my mum died, she had to let her agency know who employed her because obviously they're private agencies, yeah. aren't they? The yeah. NHS don't send a nurse. You've got a private carer yeah. with a private company. She phoned them and she said, oh, Mrs Jones has died. They told her the address of her next patient was the next day. That's heartless. The next Absolutely day. heartless. That's terrible. So I'd driven from London to see my mum on the day she died and Daria told me, she, Daria was crying and crying and she said, I've got to go to my next job tomorrow. She didn't have a car. She had five, six years' worth of clothes a and life, suitcases, yeah. laptop. 
So then I drove back the next day. My mum had been taken out of the house. Yeah. Picked up Daria and all her suitcases and drove her to her next client, which was miles away. They wanted her to get a bus, a train. That's heartbreaking. No, no, no respect for her grief or the relationship no. she had with, with your mum. That's terrible. Terrible. But when I had my memoir out, and that was in 2013... The Daily Mail wanted me to write something to promote the book because they're very, very supportive. But anyway, in July 2013, I wrote a piece about my mum for the Daily Mail. And the subheading was, Mum devoted her life to me. Why couldn't I manage just a day caring for her? I've just spent 24 hours being a carer to my 93-year-old mum. When my shift came to an end, I couldn't wait to get away. I sped at 94 miles an hour along the M11 back to my pristine house in London, away from the creams and the screams. My screams. I couldn't do it. I knew caring for my mum would be hard. I'd made stabs at it before in the years since my dad died. She's always been disabled, crippled with arthritis as a very young woman. But after dad died, she got worse and is in constant pain. I'd go to see her each weekend at her semi in Saffron Walden. She didn't even own a house. And I washed her hair over a sink. I take her ready meals in cashmere. Many, many, many M&S dresses, shirt dresses. None of my brothers ever bought her clothes. When she was confined to a wheelchair seven years ago, I took her to my London house in a private ambulance. That's when I used to have money. Thinking how nice it would be to cosset her in my beautiful house. It lasted a week before I sent her back. Her wheelchair made little grooves in my wooden oak floors. Oh dear. That wouldn't have gone down well. Once, I was trying to help her to the loo and I couldn't hold her up and I screamed for help as she fell to the marble floor. It was so shocking having her in my house and so very different to visiting her for an hour with a box of Bendix. My now ex-husband suggested at the time that she move in with us. I think that was probably just to distract me while he went off with other women, but there we go. I knew I wasn't up to it. It would be like having a giant toddler in our midst. Not cute, not something I could dress up and show off, but a great big blot on my lovely life. For as well as being unable to walk or dress, my mum had already succumbed to dementia. She was deposited back in her house and she was soon confined to a bedroom upstairs and as a family we applied for care. For a few years she was visited three times a day, fed, watered, changed. Her own furniture was moved out and hospital beds and hoists installed. Then a full-time nurse arrived called Rita, an incredible African woman who'd get paper hats on my mum and make her a cake for Christmas Day when not one of her seven children or ten grandchildren turned up. When she left, we got Daria, a 52-year-old mum of three grown children from Latvia. I realised she was kind and patient as I arrived at weekends to sit by my mum while working on my laptop. But having spent 24 hours in Daria's shoes, I now realise she's a saint. It's so easy when we see stories about carers who are late or inadequate to condemn the people who wipe the bottoms of our parents. But we had, didn't have one bad experience all the years that my mum had carers and full-time living nurses. My mum was so infirm that, as well as Daria, she needed two drop-in girls who helped at crucial times. 
I refer to them as pop-up carers, belying my shallow fashion credentials and predilection for pop-up boutiques and pop-up restaurants. And yes, these women often arrive late and stay for the briefest of times. They write carefully in a logbook. Mrs Jones was chatty today. Cream down there, change pad. These girls also help Dari give my mum a full body wash twice a week while her long silver hair is washed in the mini paddling pool. I put on my apron and gloves, ready to start my shift. But it turns out my mum is in too much pain to be moved around often, no longer well enough to go up in a hoist. My first job is to give her breakfast, then medication. In the kitchen she never sees, where she used to bake all her own bread and delicious Victoria sponges. I prepare the first of her three identical meals, baby food, in a puree from a jar. So sad. Each meal is brown slush. I take a bib, a box of tissues, and sit next to her cot, which has rails on the side to prevent her falling out. Hello, Mummy, I say. It's Lizzie. It's your baby. She always called me her baby because I was the youngest and, and the nicest. Her eyes seem glued shut. Her face is swollen. I touch her cheek with the small cold spoon. Nothing. Some days she just doesn't wake up. She no longer speaks. She might cry out, but otherwise it's as though she's in a coma. I examine the drugs with names I don't recognise. Liquid paracetamol, diprobase cream, Pyritin. I've heard of Pyritin. I remember as a child my mum's sweet, concerned face looming at me, always gentle. She never once raised her voice. She always did her best to make sure we were clean and smart. We had no washing machine, no freezer, no car. No, 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 Daria says, breezing in. She was sort of lurking because she didn't trust Keeping me. Keeping an eye, I'll bless her. She has to finish her food yet first. Hello, Mrs Jones, wake up, breakfast. I realise I'm too shy, not cheerleader enough for this. If it were left to me, my mum would die of dehydration in days. She's like a blind baby bird. I can't do it. I scrape goo from her whiskery face with the spoon. During bad weeks, my mum has warm liquid from a pipette. Do you think it's wrong to withdraw food from the terminally ill? I asked Daria, who's hovering and hoovering. Shh, she says, putting a finger to her lips. I realise I'm treating my mum as if she can't hear, as if she's just a big blob. Another girl arrives to help change her. I can see her thinking, wow... I've not seen you before, Miss Fussy Pants. <laughs> I'm sorry I've not been here, I said. I'm here to help today. The roses I've brought get in the way and fall over. Hello, Mrs Jones, she bellows. They all shout. I didn't shout at my mum. Probably because they thought she was deaf. The duvet's pulled back and the first time in about a decade I see my mum's body, her once lovely body that was a ballerina, the perfectly ironed M&S nighty. My mum looks worried she might fall. Oh, she says. Later we're alone and my mum lies there, eyes shut. Her lips are blue and I watch her chest rise and fall. I wish she would die. I warm more mush. I tried to give her a cup of tea and move her just to get her hair out from under her the back of her head because it looks sore. Um, rolling her over, I bang her head on the side table. Aww. Crack. I'm completely 
useless. I don't think it's your useless, but it is a real skill, isn't it? Manoeuvring people that, you know, when they're they're heavy, they're a dead weight because they're yeah. not taking responsibility yeah. themselves. I it's think a skill. One the, one, I think one of the other reasons I wrote this piece was not just because I had a book coming out and I'm self-serving, but there was lots in the press about why can't, as, as there is now, about what you know, care. Why can't families look after their relatives? Why can't the daughter look after the mum? I remember I went to interview Anne Widdicombe and she gave up her life to look after her mum. Yeah, and, yeah. and I said, why did you do that? I said, I couldn't do that. Why did you do that? And she said, it, to me, it was as natural as breathing. Yeah. But I'm just not that type. And I don't think everyone is cut out to look no, after their parents. Not. No, and you can't have someone looking after parents who's going to shout at her or lose their temper or get bored. No. You know, I, so the, the, really the real reason I wrote this piece was because people were saying, can't families do it, can't families do it. My solution was, OK, I'll pay for it. Yeah. So that was something. No, the important thing is that she but was I cared do it for myself. properly. That, yeah. That's the important thing. And also thing. I don't think my mum wanted me to do it. She was such a martyr. She wouldn't have wanted me to do no, it. No. And I think it is very hard to care for someone that you're so emotionally involved with. You know, if you... if you Every stumble, every every movement, every if yeah. they're in pain, it hurts you yeah. too. And it doesn't make you... It must be very hard to be objective enough to step back and just get on with what you need to but do. But it was quite funny. I went to visit her with a boyfriend. We'd only been there about five minutes and I was quite ashamed to take him there, really, because he expected me to live in this huge mansion and it was an awful 60s semi on a housing estate. And um, we were there about five minutes and I said to my mum, well, we've got to go, we've got to go. And, uh, and, and he said, we've only been here five minutes. And I said, but no, she's got dementia, she won't know. She's got no idea of time. So I'll tell her we've been here for an hour. Isn't that awful? It's you, though, isn't it? It's you. Everything is rushed, you know. <laughs> Everything. That's you. That's just... You. you can't change who you are. Anyway, we got to 8 o'clock. Another girl arrived called Gemma. Rock and roll, Edna, she said to my mum. She had done 25 visits to people that day. God. She was the pop-up carer. And to be still cheerful and come in fresh, that's just amazing. <sighs> Full respect to her. Anyway, so I kissed goodbye to my mum, having cracked her skull open on the side table. And I said, OK, mummy, I whisper, wondering if I should read to her. I'm here. If you cry out, your baby's here. I hope Daddy's waiting for you. I hope it won't be too long. Bless her. Poor Mummy Jones. It's just, it's horrible. And I think dementia is so cruel, isn't it? Because you don't know how much they recognise. You don't know how, you know, how to deal with them when they're confused. It, it, it takes... But Such. I think, I know it won an Oscar. I know I haven't won an Oscar, though I have won other awards. I do think they could have done more with the father. Yeah. The despair of the daughter, the shame, the mess. It only really glided over the surface yeah. of what it's really like. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I saw it and I, I thought it was very, very, very clever. Um, very clever, and it was it was great. It was done from his point of view, but I, it left me a few times feeling confused, which obviously is the idea because yeah. you're feeling his confusion. Yeah. But I kind of um, came out thinking, I, I don't know what happened about that. I don't know what happened about that. And I like things all nice and neat. 
So it was it was quite difficult for me to watch because yeah. I felt his confusion, and I don't I don't like feeling like yeah. that. So it yeah, it's really interesting. But yeah, people that care for their family, amazing. I mean, we've got a, a listener, Ashley, and she cares for her mum, and she just sounds amazing, just amazing. And that you know, I just got so much respect. I don't know if I could do it to be honest, no. but you know, amazing. <laughs> So you've been out and about this week now. Yeah, well, I've had a really, really, really difficult um, week. Um, my dog, Charlie, um, is 15. He had a vestibular episode, which it's for anyone... It's like a stroke. It's, it's, it, yeah, it's basically like like the um, what you've had and what I've had with the dizziness. It, you, you, the crystals in the head get displaced. And um, so he, at one point, couldn't even stand up. Um, we, we're getting we're getting there. He can now stand up. So I'm, it's twenty four hour care. We're talking about being carers. It's twenty four hour care. He because he couldn't walk. Um, had to put a sling on him. Poor and Charlie. Poor Charlie. And he also has the beginnings of dementia. So it's a bit confusing for him. So I've literally spent most of my time under Charlie, cuddling him, and you know, lifting him from here to there. And Prognosis is good. He should he should be okay. It's just it's just you still time. went to see Darren Brown though. Well, my I did go to see Darren Brown. My mum said to me, "You've got to have a break because I'm not sleeping. I'm I'm up with him all night." So she said, "You've got to have a break." And I've wanted to see Darren Brown for so long, but I have moved the skydive. I was doing the skydive this Saturday, so I've moved it to the 16th of October because I can't leave him for that amount of time. So apologies and to also anyone. Will, Nick, you've been so ill. It's not a good idea to jump out of plane. So massive apologies to anyone that sponsored me. But it, if you haven't sponsored me, it still gives you lots of time to just go for it. But I did. Mum forced me out the door and said I needed a break. And I have been desperate to see Darren Brown for years. And Mark, we, I went with Martin, which is unusual because Martin only actually really ever wants to go to the pub. So to get him to go somewhere else is like a bloody miracle. And I love, I love, love, love Darren Brown. He's the full package. What was the theme of the show? Well, I can't give away too much of the show because it would spoil it for people. But I love him. He's intelligent, he's handsome, he's talented, he's funny, he's an amazing artist. He's literally the perfect husband. He, he's, just, he's just perfect. The show is fantastic. It's, it's full of humour. The illusions are incredible. And it's so funny because, like, you know, he throws frisbees into the audience to select people to come up on. So it's random. So you selected. But literally, like, some people are cowering. No, it's literally some people are cowering. And I'm like, I'm like a border collie, like, trying to get it out the air. No, my collies don't like (laughs) frisbees. I was like the bridesmaid that's got no prospect of getting married that's desperate to get the bouquet. So there's... Like she might get married. I was sitting there with my arms flapping around. I think I punched a bloke behind me who was also trying to get it. Literally, uh, it's hilarious. It's a fantastic atmosphere. So if you're going to see him, you'll have a fantastic time. Are you time. all sitting in seats next to each other? Yeah, they. you had to either take your vaccination card or take a negative COVID test with you. And there was, there was one point where you all have to sort of stand up and he gives you instructions to see if you sort of go under and, like, you can't set... It's a trick, you can't separate your hands. That's not giving too much away. And I, I didn't. I don't think I'm susceptible enough. So I, I did, and I was perfectly all right. And there was a brief moment where I thought, shall I fake it? Shall I... Fa- I really want to get close to Darren Brown. I'm like a stalker. I really want to get down there on that stage. And I'm like, 
shall I fake it? And I'm like, it's not ethical. And then what if like you're on stage and you can't fake being on stage and doing what he wants you to do? So I, I protected myself and sat down, but it crossed my mind. It did. It crossed my mind. It is a fantastic show. It's the best money I've spent for a really long time. It was worth every penny. And I've seen some of his shows on Netflix now, but it's not like being in the theatre. And he's he's so How funny weird to be in a theatre after two years. No, it was fantastic. It's a beautiful theatre. Oh, no, you went to Tom Jones the other day. I went to that, yeah, but that was open air. That was yeah, but I haven't stadium. been anywhere. I just sit um, in my office working. Well, that was my mum's birthday present from two years ago, bless her. But, yeah, it was absolutely fantastic. I think we have got... to talk briefly here that Nick had a terrible, terrible, terrible misfire with my birthday present. I did have a misfire. I tried. I really tried. Nick, who dresses from Next and Pretty Little Thing, bought me a pair of trousers. From Zara. You like Zara. You like Zara. And they, they were, were lovely. Wide. They were lovely cream trousers. But why buy a fashion editor clothes? I've bought you clothes loads of times and you've always liked them. I bought you Jumpers. Iris and Ink stuff. No, the Iris and Ink stuff you liked. Don't complain. Don't be so bloody ungrateful. I also... Where's my alternative? I've not had time yet, but I will. You're just getting a bloody candle now. Um, So don't get yourself excited. I tried, I failed. You're getting a candle. My other... My friend Isabel turned up and I went on holiday with her to the Lake District and she was wearing Crocs and I was covering my eyes. I couldn't even look at them. She bought me a pair of Crocs. Yeah, I think I think that's just eliminated from your life, personally. Crocs, Crocs, honestly, Crocs. But even why me, buy something for someone that you know they don't like? Well, she must because have thought you'd like it. Because you're trying to impose yourself on them. Well, she must have thought you'd like. You won't, you won't get them. If she thought you'd hate them. I mean, I don't know why you she think you'd like them, but no, she didn't think I liked them, Nick. Because the whole time on holiday, I said, "Why are you wearing Crocs? They're <laughs> terrible." <laughs> I'm not saying a word. I'll incriminate myself. You can read this week's diary in full on Man on Sunday's You magazine. Do you want to know what this week's column is? Tell about? me what happened this week. I went to the GP, although I have a private GP in London. I went to my GP here for the very, very first time because of my dizziness and vomiting. Yeah. And. This column is after four months. I finally get the appointment with the ENT consultant at my local hospital after four months. And I was so nervous because obviously I'd had a brain scan. And so I'm thinking for four months they've been pouring over this brain scan. They're going to tell me what's going on inside my head. So I was so worried. I was led into the consulting room by a very stony-faced nurse in a mask, but I could tell she wasn't smiling and twinkly just by her demeanour. She didn't talk to me. And I had a hearing test. I don't know why I was giving a hearing test, because I know I'm deaf. I was led into the presence of the consultant. He barely looked at me. He was wearing a thick mask, which meant I couldn't hear a word he said, which is very odd, as he must deal with deaf people every day. He's and an ear, nose and throat consultant. And you can get clear masks, you know, a lot... Of, so I said, I said to him, I can't hear you with a mask. I didn't, he didn't take it off. No, very strange. You should have, like, at least a face shield instead or something. And then do you know what he said? Go on. 
Are you here for your hearing loss or for the vertigo and vomiting? Oh, let me think about that. Oh, constantly vomiting and falling over. Hmm, let me think. I've been deaf my whole life. How strange. Why would I suddenly want an appointment there? Of course I'm here for the vertigo and the vomiting. How strange. I throw up violently for weeks on end. And they're probably linked anyway. He looked in my ears and he said nothing. What was the result of my brain scan? I said, I thought, because one of us has got to bring it up. I wasn't aware you'd had one, he said. Oops. Oh, dear. Yes, I had one. I said to find out the dizziness is caused by a stroke or if I have a brain tumour. He kept looking at his screen. He didn't look at me. Probably trying to find the brain scan. And he said, I'll have to book you an appointment to have some balance tests. So I said, well, I know. I said, a rabbit would know I need balance tests. That's why I'm here today. Yeah. I'm terrified when I wake up every day that I'm going to have an attack. He didn't tell me he was done. He just went back to his computer. The nurse stood up and opened the door. He said he booked me an appointment for my balance test, which I should have had before I saw him. And when I got back, a couple of days later, I got a letter. So my next appointment is November. And that's for the balance tests. So and then you'll to need see to see him after the test. Right. Oh, at least, yeah. So what was the point of me waiting four months? No. So I then angrily wrote a letter to my GP because I thought, I've got to tell this twit that he sent me off to see another twit. I've got to tell him. So I wrote him a letter and I got you to print it out in our Miranda Priestley moment this week. That was the only one. Yes, yes. And deliver it. I printed and delivered. And in his reply, which he says that he has no power over when the appointment is, he's got no power over the consultant I need to write to the hospital, he said, the CT of your head was requested when I saw you in May. As you'd been referred a month earlier, the hospital was unaware that you were going to have a head scan. Does that not... That just doesn't make any sense. I, I, I thought it was me being thick. I've got to be honest. I didn't understand that at all. So he booked me to see the consultant Yeah. in August. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After that, he ordered me a head scan. Because he ordered me the head scan after he booked me in to see the consultant, the consultant was completely unaware I was having a head scan. Wonder, is there not like a, a system where everything's loaded on for one person? But patient? can they not just pick up the phone and say, by the way... Since I asked you to see this patient who's vomiting every day and her assistant had to call her an ambulance like she was Miranda Priestley, we've also ordered her a head scan. So when she comes in, can you make sure you've seen it? How long did that take? No, no. So the reason the NHS has got no money is because they book you in for an appointment, take up his valuable time, take up my valuable time, for no reason, because I hadn't had the tests. So they're wasting time, so now I have to have another appointment. Yeah. So I ended my column, and I know it won't be very popular, but I couldn't give a stuff, really, saying I'm not applauding on my doorstep for him or the stony-faced, miserable old bag of a nurse. Oh, and he still don't know what's wrong? No. No. No further ahead. No further ahead. In my head.
so sorry to interrupt, Liz, but we have a very important announcement that might just interest your listeners. There's another Mail on Sunday podcast and it could change your life. It's called Medical Minefield. Yes, where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. And that's with me, Barney Kalman, the Mail on Sunday's health editor. And me, Eve Simmons, the deputy health editor. Find us at mailplus.co.uk. Every week, lots of you get in touch telling me what you think about my life and my decisions. So I think it's only fair that you get to have your say here on the podcast too. If you'd like to get in touch, then go to lizjonesgoddess.com or tweet me at lizjonesgoddess. So what's the readers up to this week, Nick? Everyone has been sort of quite outraged. They're on my side, They're on aren't your they? Side. You go, girls. The my girls, readers are on my side. The girls side. have got together. They're not impressed. And they're all sticking up for you. And we've got... Um, this was after last week where we talked about my response to my husband's piece. Yes. My ex-husband's piece in the Telegraph. She put him back in the... Ow, she, that's the dog. She put him back in the box. Yeah. Uh, so you've got a, a lady here that says, um, Hi Liz, I wanted to drop you a note to express how pleased I am you responded to your ex-husband's telegraph piece. My girlfriends and I, only responses when we read it was, what a sad little man and gosh, look at the state of him. Wasn't he punching being with Liz? We all think he's attempting to throw shade because you've won your prestigious award. Let's face it, who is he anyway? If anyone knows him from Adam... It's as Lizzie Jones is cheating, freeloading an ex-husband. Fat. You go there, girl. Fat. Um, anyway, he needed telling. She told him. She told him. Well done for putting him in his place and reminding him who you are. You're a queen, goddess. Goddess. You're a goddess. I don't usually get rolled by articles that don't cover animal cruelty, but this downright cheat made me rage. And a lot of them letters have been along the same lines. She's really on the not Christmas impressed. card list. She's on she the now? Christmas card list. And we've got a lovely reader from York. He says, Dear Liz, after reading today's diary, I googled your ex-husband pieces. God, Liz, how could a lovely, gorgeous, successful woman like you lower yourself by... I'm putting lots of emphasis in here for dramatic effect. Lower yourself by getting involved with such an ungrateful, vain, vindictive little turd. And she's had horrible experiences herself. She had an affair with a younger man. She was with him for seven years and she... Did what you did. She took him out. She took him on holidays. Yeah, and he was having affairs. And when she questioned him about his affairs, he he said, not your business. I can sleep with who I like. And she replied, yes, you can, but you're not sleeping with me at the same time. So I'm doing lots of virtual clapping here. I dumped him and ignored his pleas to make up. When I read what Nurple said about you, I was so angry. So he's, he's, he's getting the full works here. And we've also lastly got today... From Leslie, we've got Dear Liz and Nick, your podcast never ceases to entertain me. I've been married twice, successfully the second. The first was just a practice run. Your husband, as far as I can establish, must have been your practice run. And this is where you establish everything that's wrong in your relationship and don't want to make the same mistake again, hopefully. It seems to me he was a parasite who will have no idea what to write when he has exhausted the subject of your marriage. Yeah, I mean, what else does he write? Who else has seen him write anything else? He will fade into obscurity and be forgotten, while you will have to make room for the awards on the mantelpiece you are yet to win. We've just put the second one on, haven't we? We've yeah, put it on, gonna, it's on. I've got a little space that I've dusted. She says, a second-class writer and a second-class husband. 
Good luck to anyone that gets in for their practice run. Well, that's it from us this week. If you enjoyed listening to Liz Jones's Diary, the podcast, why not visit melplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and more. I'll be back next Sunday, but for now, I'm Liz Jones. And I'm Nick. Goodbye. Goodbye.